0: So we're starting a new series, as you can tell, uh, called Amazing Stories, and uh, we kind of labored a little bit about this with the staff of trying to figure out, like, I didn't like the word stories because if you talk about stories, then it sounds like they're not true, like they're, like you, you made up something, and so, um, but we, we decided that that was okay, and um, we landed on this, this uh, series called Amazing Stories, and what we're going to do is it's kind of cool because we are doing exactly what children's ministry is doing. So they're going to go over this morning. We're going to talk about David and Goliath. They're going to be talking about David and Goliath. And what's cool is we're going to teach you stuff so that you appear smarter than your children when you drive them home. So... As you drive home, your daughter or son can say, you know, uh, David and this, you know, you could say, well, actually, you know, Goliath in Hebrew means, and you'll have the answer to that, and and then they'll be like, whoa, mom, dad, you guys are so smart, and you're like, yeah, get used to it. And so... um, (laughs) This is a four-week series, and we're going to do that for all four weeks. So we're going to go over Jonah and Daniel and all this kind of stuff. And we're hoping that we'll do this again later on in the year. And so by the end of the year, we'll have uh, under our belt a whole bunch of stories that the Bible talks about. And the Bible, really, when you look at it, the, the whole overarching thing of the Bible is that it's God's story. And so there's these little kind of mini stories, but overwhelmingly, the entire Bible is God's story. And our job as we study the Bible is to interweave our story with God's story and see how it applies to us. And so this morning, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to, uh, I don't know if you ever watch um, wrestling, um, but uh, professional wrestling, it, 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 there's this thing, you know, you've got these teams, and so the one person will Tap the other guy, and then they can come in the ring. So I've officially tapped Bob, and he's going to come up and talk to us.
1: Looking at today has been really important to me, David and Goliath. Um, you know, when I first some of you guys know that part of my story was I taught college for a while, and the first opportunity I had to teach was in first and second Samuel. The David and Goliath story is in First Samuel, it's chapter 17. And when I was asked to teach that class, most of what I knew about first and second Samuel was that it was in the Bible. And that the David and Goliath story was there, and that it was a, a fun story. But I thought it was kind of a kid's story. And the reason was, is my son was three at a time. And so I spent at least eight times a day, every day. Because, you know, when you're three, if something is good once, it's better eight times or nine times. And so I was well aware of the fact that Goliath was a giant pickle. And the Philistines were (laughs) peas. And that David was a small piece of asparagus. I knew this. But this didn't seem like something that was worthy of scholarly attention. You know, I mean, Romans, Ephesians is the case. But what I found out, and I found out over the last couple decades, is that what we often dismissively call stories are some of the most profound parts of the Bible. And in fact, I would suggest that the passage we're looking at today, and we are just going to scratch the top of what's going on in this story, that this is actually way more subtle and demands much more of us and rewards much more of us as readers, as listeners, than the densest parts of Romans do, okay? So John and I are going to be splitting this up, and, and generally what I'm going to do as we go along the, uh, at the beginning is to just underline this basic fact, that the authors of the Bible like you, respect you, and think you're smart. And so what it means is the Bible is worth slowing down and paying attention to. You know, there's some movies that if you really try to concentrate on them, there's really nothing to concentrate on. It's just kind of there. You watch it, you're done, you move on. A lot of TV's like that. And there's a lot of books that are like that. But these stories of the Bible are not like that. Every time you read them, and the more you slow down and pay attention to them, the more that's there. And so my job in what we're doing here is basically to show you a couple things. What the passage assumes that we know. You know, anytime you tell a joke, anytime you tell a story, there's stuff that you just assume your audience knows. You know, if we talk about the Super Bowl today, as inevitably John will because you have to, you're required to, he's not going to say the Super Bowl is the championship of the National Football League, a professional football, and, and have to define all that. We figure you know what you're talking about in the NFL. And there's a lot of stuff that's like that in the Bible, and what makes it hard sometimes is that it was written thousands of years ago in a culture that's very different than ours. So we're going to make some of that clear. And the other part is I'm going to try to point out to you what the writers want us to notice and what they want us to feel. If you slow down and pay attention to it, the very way that the biblical writers use their language is artful and powerful. They're not just doing a just the facts, ma'am, but these are carefully constructed stories that these are genuinely good literature. They're not just literature, but they're genuinely good literature. And if we slow down, we can see the stuff that acts almost like a soundtrack or cinematography in the story, okay? So here we go. We begin, since we're already using terms like this, this is the exposition section of the David and Goliath story. We're getting the basic setting. And right away, if you're not dialed into the geography of Canaan, you're going to get a little lost. So it says this. Here we go. Now, the Philistines had gathered their forces for war and assembled at Socah and Judah. And they had pitched a camp at Ephes Damim between Socah and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. And the Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another and the valley in between them. All right. Now, for most of us, this is where our brains already start to shut off, right? Because this is not exciting stuff. And it uses a lot of strange places that we don't know. So let me, let me just break this down a little bit. This place here, FS Damim, um, that's like the edge of where the Philistines can go. And this Soko and Azakah are sort of the edge of where the Israelites are. And this Valley of Elah is sort of the passageway between where the Philistines live and where the Israelites live. So the picture it wants us to have is that both they are meeting right where their two countries come together. So the Philistines are about five miles away from the last undisputed Philistine town, and the Israelites are about five miles away from the last undisputed Israelite town. And so everything is even. And you can even see it. If you, if you look at the language that's there, they're described exactly the same way. They're camped this way. The Philistines are camped this way. The Israelites are camped that way. They're in this place. They're in this place. And they're on top of opposite hills looking at each other. And there is now a stalemate. So what's going to happen next? So we have the picture. We know where they are. We have the situation set up. And then they bring in something that's going to change it. A champion named Goliath, who is from Gath, that's one of the big cities of the Philistines, or Gath, um, came out from the Philistine camp. Now, there's an interesting um, thing here that gets lost a little bit in translation. So, the word that they translate champion is actually an idiom, and it means the man who stands in between. And so, that's the picture we have here. We've got Philistines here. We've got Israelites over here. We've got this gap, and what fills the gap is this guy, Goliath. Goliath. And now, the passage will slow down even more. And this is one of the basic rules of biblical narrative. The very places where it gives us a bunch of detail and you want to just go blah, 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 the text is wanting you to slow down and pay attention. And so, Goliath comes out to fill that gap. And in the way he's described to us, he literally does. If you look at the next few verses there, if you're used to watching football games, these are Goliath's personal stats, essentially what he is. You know, and playing in this position, Goliath from the University of Ghats standing six cubits or, yeah, six cubits and one span, which is nine feet, nine inches tall, really big. And you can see all the rest of his gear. He has bronze helmet, bronze armor, all kinds of other things, really heavy. And the thing is, is this is not exaggeration. This guy is really that big, Okay. And, and it's not like people were bigger in their world. He's supposed to be extraordinarily big. And as readers, we're supposed to think, wow, the Israelites are in trouble. <laughs> this guy is really big. In fact, he has like this super spear thrower. It gets kind of translated like a, the beam of his spear. Actually, they're probably pretty sure now that it's like this special machine that makes his spear go even further. And then finally, he's got one other thing. The head of his spear is made out of iron, Fifteen pounds of iron, which is, you know, a lot. If you think about it, the javelin that athletes throw is only one, one kilo, 2.2 pounds. So, just the head of his spear is 15 pounds. And if you know something about ancient history, it's made out of iron, which tells you the Israelites are completely sunk. The Philistines, they've made the jump to the Iron Age. The, the Israelites are still stuck in the Bronze Age. There is no way they can win against somebody like this. So then… Goliath comes out, and he knows that more powerful than weapons are words very often, and so he comes out and gives a very carefully crafted speech to the Israelites. He says this, he comes out and shouts to the ranks of Israel, a military term, to the guys lined up, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. And then the Philistines said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Now That sounds like basic kind of rough guy trash talk, right? And part of what he's doing here is this is called um, combat by champion. It was a way to preserve armies. Instead of having this army fight this army, that was something that was common in the ancient world is you would send guys out to fight each other. But this is a rather elaborate plan, yeah? And what you will notice if you read First and Second Samuel over time and just generally in the Bible, that whenever people are making elaborate plans, especially elaborate plans that don't involve God, they never work out. And those of you guys that have read this story before, you know the David and Goliath story, you know that this is not how it ends up, right? That this elaborate plan that they make doesn't work out. Later on in the story, when David's trying to meet up with Jonathan, Saul's son, they have all this whole thing, you shoot arrows this way, and and if you do this, and I'll come out at this time. And it, it takes like two paragraphs to describe, and then when they finally get to the time, none of it works And they just go out and talk to each other. Or you might remember later on when David um, gets in trouble with Bathsheba and Uriah and has Uriah murdered. And he has this very elaborate plan to try to cover up his sin. Doesn't work. So we're already primed to know that this isn't going to work. But there's a couple other things that Goliath's doing here that I want to point out to you. One of them is notice it's almost what he's not saying is the power of it rather than what he's saying. He's not calling them names. He's issuing a challenge. But he's issuing a challenge in the way that is going to be completely demoralizing to them. We've just seen his stats. We know, we know that if any Israelite goes toe-to-toe with Goliath, there is no possible way that they could win. The other thing is, is he says, keep sending me a man. Choose a man. See, Goliath knows Israel's history really well, and he knows that just a few years before, Israel had chosen to have a human king rather than God, and that human king's name was Saul. And Saul was chosen because he was a great warrior. In fact, it says Saul is essentially Israel's Goliath. Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else in Israel. So that as Goliath is calling out, send me a man, he's really calling out Israel's king who's not coming. And then notice one other thing that Goliath is doing, or he's doing something else too. He's, he's actually remembering something out of Israel's history. In 1 Samuel 8, after Israel asked for a king, Samuel and the Lord know it's a bad idea, but they let him do it anyway. And chapter 8 of 1 Samuel is a whole series of warnings where Samuel is warning the people that your king will take from you. He'll take your sons, he'll take your daughters, he'll take your stuff to build his whole apparatus. And then at the end, you will be his slaves. Well, here's what's interesting. You know that word that gets translated um, servants of Saul? The word servant is also the word slave. He says, I am a Philistine. I'm a free man. Who are you guys? You guys are Saul's slaves. He's actually taking their story and turning it back around on them. And then notice one other thing that Goliath is doing here. Do you notice how he doesn't mention God at all? He doesn't mention his gods. He doesn't mention the Israelites' gods. He's doing that on purpose. He's doing that on purpose. He defies the people. And the reason he's doing it is this is exactly the thing that he wants them to have. Notice, this is the Israelites' response. It says, On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now, this is a reasonable response. This guy is nine feet tall. He has an iron-headed spear. He's kind of a tough guy. They have no chance against him. But there's something else in the language that the writer used here that is really cool. This is, remember I said the biblical authors, they like you, respect you, and they think they're smart, Think you're smart. Well, a lot of times the biblical writers don't spell stuff out to us. They leave it for us to make some of the connections. And if you were reading this as a, as a reader, these two words, the one translated, whoops. Okay. Okay. Um, The word that's translated dismayed here is the usual word for being afraid, and that shows up all over in the Old Testament. But this other word, terrified, right here, it only shows up five times in the Hebrew Bible, and all of them are with that other word. So it's like a slogan. To be dismayed and terrified is like a slogan, except every time it shows up, twice in Deuteronomy and three times in Joshua, it's part of a negative construction where it says, don't be Don't be terrified. Don't be dismayed. And the reason is because the Lord is with you. That's what you see over and over again. Deuteronomy, you're going to go into a land, it's going to be scary. Joshua, you're going into a land, it's scary. But don't be dismayed. Don't be terrified because the Lord is with you. So what's missing from here? The Lord is. The Lord is. This is the only time it occurs like this. By implication, what the author is truly trying to show us is that God is absent from this situation. The Israelites are really scared. They're really terrified, mostly because they've forgotten about God. They don't call on him. Goliath is smart enough not to remind them that they're forgetting about their God. And that's why they are in such a difficult situation. And so that's what sets the scene. Philistines over here, Israelites over here, Goliath in between calling them out. And it ends with kind of a cliffhanger. What's going to happen? How will the Israelites handle this? Will they remember to call on God or not? Will the Israelites produce somebody that can go out and fight Saul? Will they remember their story as well as Goliath has remembered their story and put it to use? That's where it ends up, and that's where it's time to tag. Okay, so that's me uh, with a stick
0: And that stick is uh, nine feet, nine inches. So this kind of gives you an idea. That's how big Goliath is. Isn't that cool? Now, I win this battle because I'm wearing a Bluetooth uh, (laughs) in this particular picture. So uh, technologically, I'm a little ahead there. And that's probably not really what he looked like. I don't think Goliath looked like Tom Cruise, but anyway, um, which is what that guy looks like to me. But as Bob was talking about, this idea of being dismayed and terrified, you ever, you ever had that happen to you? You ever have a thing and maybe you're going through something right now, this week, or you get something in the mail, it's tax season, I'm dismayed and terrified a little bit, right? Uh, you, maybe you're looking at pink slips, maybe your family member's looking at pink slips, maybe... Uh, something's going wrong with a relationship that you're in and you kind of get stuck in this idea of being dismayed and terrified. Uh, here's the actual verse. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now watch what happens because this is, what I'm going to try and do at this point is point to the nation of Israel and see how this really does apply to us in our relationship with God. And... Uh, watch what happens. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and every evening and took his stand. Now, I don't know what happened on day 8, day 9, but there had to have been a day, uh, 28, where you're like, hey... (laughs) You know, you get up in the morning. You put on your armor. You know, you pour yourself a cup of coffee, and every morning Goliath gets up, starts trash talking, yakking. And you go, you go through the whole thing. Watch what it. Watch what it says. Early in the morning, David left his, leaves his flock. So David's introduced to the story. His dad Jesse, who's which my son, is named after Jesse. David's father means God exists. Jesse sends his son to the battle lines and says, hey, go take some cheeses and some stuff to your brothers and see how the battle's going. Was there a battle? No, there wasn't. They would just get up, make their coffee, put on their armor, go to the front of the line, sit there, Goliath would come, yell, okay, go back, okay. So early in the morning, David left his flock in care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out Jesse had, as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp. Now, listen to this. This is so strange. As the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry there Ain't no war they're just there. Now, I don't know how you get yourself all riled up every morning to shout when you know it's going to, we're on day 32. It's the same thing. I mean, how do you get, I mean, by day 35, you're just like, hey, you know, like it's the same thing over and over again. And as I read this text, I start thinking to myself, isn't that us? When we're stuck, isn't that us? Every day, the same battle cry. Every day we get up, it's the same thing. Maybe it's your work that's just totally bringing you down. And every morning you wake up and on your way to work, you get on the phone, you talk to your buddy and you shout the battle cry. Uh, Back to the old grind. I can't stand this. My boss. Did I tell you the story? Yes, you did. What about my boss? And yeah, you told us every day for 40 days. You get stuck. Maybe you're in a relationship. With your spouse, I just talked to somebody after first service, their parents have got all sorts of problems. 40 years their parents have had problems, same problems. She's getting up in the morning, shouting the battle cry, eh, you know what your dad did to me? Yeah, we heard the story. Heard it. For 40 years we've heard the story. How, how do you get unstuck? Watch. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. Again, 40 days. Now watch what that all says. This the story gets even weirder. Okay? Get up, get your coffee, put on your armor, get up, go yeah, you know, shout your war cry. And watch this. Whenever the Philist the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. 40 days in a row. You get up, drink your coffee, get your stuff on. Hey, ah, like, like 40 days in a row. And I'm reading this, I'm thinking, that's me. That's me. When I get stuck, it's the same thing. I wake up in the morning, I make my coffee, and whatever my issue is, whatever the thing that's causing me to be dismayed and terrified, you know what it does? It owns me because I've made up an elaborate system because God's not there. Whenever God isn't there, we make up elaborate systems. And so whatever my thing is, whether it's an addiction or, a, or, or something that's going on or something that I'm worried about or we're going to do this or the church or my kids or whatever, I make up elaborate systems and I get dismayed and I get terrified and I wake up in the morning and I go and maybe Lisa and I talk about it. Oh, oh, we got to talk about it, talk about it, talk about it, talk about it. Ah, uh, uh, you know, like, like over and over and over again. Watch. So, you're, so. Here's what happens. When Iliab, this is David's older brother, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking to the men. See, David showed up with these bread and cheeses and stuff. And it's a really interesting verse, it says it, again, he's just sitting there, and all of a sudden Goliath comes down day after day and yells out and you know, does his trash talking, and it says, And David heard him. And David's like, What are you guys doing? There's no battle. You just come up, you shout the war cry, you hear him. So David starts asking, hey, what, what, what would happen if somebody were to fight this dude and win? Because David, you, you, you'll see, and uh, Bob was pointing this out this week as we were going over the text, David is a very complex character. Like, like you said, he slept with somebody and then had their husband killed, which, you know, not a great character trait, really. Uh, David's complex. So David, on the one hand, knows what God can do. On the other hand, it's like, if I can get a little something, something on the side for that, what happens? You know, and so they talk to him. Well, his brother hears this and says, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are, how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. What battle? There's no battle. It's just a bunch of yakking. It's just going up, battle cry, yay, turning around and running in fear. You know what happens when I read the text? I think that's, that, that's me. Oftentimes someone will come into my life, an accountability partner or whatever, and point something out about me and say, hey, you know about this? And I go, "Ah, I know what your problem is. You just, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, you don't talk to me like that. I know. Eliab's the same way. Eliab's like, man, after 40, it's kind of embarrassing after 40 days. You know what I mean? I mean, you get up, you shout, you turn around and run, you go back to your bed and wake up and do it the next day. It's kind of embarrassing. And I realize that's kind of what happens when you get stuck. It, It gets embarrassing. And you don't want anyone to know. You don't want anyone pointing anything out. We make elaborate plans rather than going to our heavenly Father which in scripture is what God tells us to do over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, this has been the pattern of Israel's existence. Seek the Lord, seek the Lord, ask the Lord, inquire of the Lord, and what did they do? I said, man, all the nations have a king. I want a king. (laughs) You ever done that? You look at somebody else's life or whatever and you think to yourself, man, that, you know, They have a girlfriend. I want a girlfriend. You start making up elaborate plans to try to fill a need that maybe God doesn't want filled. You think, man, they they got a nice car. I want a nice car. You start going into debt rather than seeking the Lord. As a matter of fact, as Bob was talking about in chapter eight, um, the people go to God and they say, we want a king. And God, for a couple paragraphs, starts talking about everything that's going to happen. Don't do it. Don't go for a king. They're going to make you slaves. They're going to make you pay taxes. See? They're going to take your daughters and your husbands and your wives and all this kind of stuff, and and he's going to use it for his own thing. And they said, no, we want a king. Now, watch what he says here in 1 Samuel. When that day comes, you want a king? Okay, when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you on that day. You know how they got to the place they're at right now? Running up, doing a battle crying, running back away? It's because they, for, they forgot God. They didn't bring God into the situation. Now, what happens? Well, David shows up and he starts remembering all the things that God had done, has done for him. And this is one of the keys to getting unstuck when you're stuck. It's beginning to look back and see, how has God delivered me in the past? Because our temptation is to want to deliver ourselves. So again, if we want something, if we, we, we see somebody's got something and we want it, we tend to go into debt to try and satisfy that want. If, if somebody's got a relationship and we start dreaming about, I want to marry someone, I want this, we tend to rush into a relationship that... We wish we hadn't rushed into maybe. Maybe if you're in school or whatever and you want friends, So oftentimes we, one of the ways we get friends is to talk about other people and all of a sudden we start running our mouths and a gossip starts and, and we get ourselves into trouble because we don't trust in God. And so that's what, what happens. So what happens is David shows up to Saul, who is taller than everybody else, and he says, hey, I'll, I'll take care of this dude. I'll take care of it. And what does he do? He remembers his past. He says, when I was, uh, uh, you know, uh, herding sheep or whatever, when I was a shepherd, uh, a bear came and took one of the sheep away. And I went after that bear. I I mean, I don't know. David must have been like, you know, I don't know how he did it. But he grabs the bear by the hair and then kills it. And then he does the same thing with a lion. And David says something super interesting. He says, God delivered me from the bear, and from the lion, he says, this uncircumcised Philistine, I don't know how he knew that, but (laughs) this uncircumcised Philistine will be no different than those guys. And I started thinking to myself, you know, this is so key for us to know as we talk about amazing stories, to know God's story and to know our story and marry the two together. One of the ways to get unstuck is to understand God's story, to understand our own story, and figure out how do they come together. So David uh, comes down to the uh, battle line here, and it says, um, he starts talking to Goliath. And he says to Goliath, "You talk about trash talking. Check this out. This is like uh, Ray Lewis, right? Okay, he says, uh, the day, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. I will strike you down and cut off your head that's disgusting but see David has this confidence not in himself although he's, he's acted out you know he's been faithful he trusts God he's doing what the Israelite army should have been doing all along seeking God finding out from the Lord what would you have us do give us a plan give us what we, what we need instead they asked for a king and now they're stuck he says, I'm going to cut off your head, and this very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. That's just, as that imagery is just disgusting. Uh, the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Now, think about that, how it applies to you. Imagine that thing you're facing, we'll call it a Goliath, even though it's kind of corny, but that Goliath you're facing, that thing. Imagine if this week or in the coming weeks, you begin to think about what God has done in the past, all the different ways he's delivered you, all the different ways he's taken care of you, all the different ways that he's, um, he's come alongside of you. And you start thinking, you know what? I think he's going to do it again. And here's even more importantly... He says, uh, the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel, which, again, even the Israelites have forgotten. But then he says this, And all those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. See, one of the ways I think we get stuck is that we're just so focused on the outward circumstances. And so we want to fix it. At least I know I do. I want to fix it. I want to solve it. I, if there's a problem at work, I want to talk my way into it. If there's a promotion that is maybe there, I want to figure out how I'm going to get it. If there's a, you want to land a new account or whatever, you're thinking to yourself, okay, how am I going to land that account? When I get to their office, how am I going to do it? And, and I completely forget. I do this as a pastor. That's how terrible I am. I'll be thinking about something with the church. And because it's church, I'll just think it's spiritual because it's church. And I'll be thinking and planning and talking and reading and doing and all this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, it'll occur to me. Hey, maybe God's got something to say about what you're planning, what you're doing. Maybe God's going to be the one that delivers you. And I get in the back of my mind, I'm like, nah, I'll read something. I'll see what another pastor did. But see, I think we're all this way. I think all of us get into places in our lives where we get to a place where we get to our battle line. We get up and we go, oh no, look at the size of that thing. And we turn in fear. So David uh, goes over here and here's here's the last verse I want to share with us. That hopefully we can kind of keep in the back of our minds this week. It says, so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand. He struck down the Philistine and killed him. Exactly like he said he was going to do. And he did cut off his head. And then he carried his head around for a while, which is just disturbing. And he brought it into Jerusalem, but you'll have to read that for yourself. But listen, as, um, as Jason comes back up, the question I have for us really is, uh, what's your battle line? What, 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 where, where are you stuck? Is it an addiction that you just can't shake and for years and years and years, you wake up every morning and go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get over it today. I'm going to get over it. Nope, today, I'm not going to do that today. And in the evening, you go to bed and go, eh, well, I did it again. Is it a relationship? Like I mentioned that that one guy this morning, where it says day after day, you just wake up and you bash your husband or bash your wife, or you tell the same stories over and over and over again. It will not change by just talking. It will not change by every day going up, getting dressed, putting on all your garb, having your sword, and going, yeah, I, I want it to change. God is going to have to come in and do a work. And the way he does that is by us inviting him to do it and then obeying through humility to say, all right. So for some of you, it might be a phone call this afternoon to find a place that has a recovery meeting. For some of you, it might be calling up and getting some marriage counseling because it's not going to change. For others, it's, it's maybe going to like, like we have that finance class on Wednesday. For some of you, it might be like, look, I've got to get control of my finances. We wake up every morning, I'm not going to overspend, I'm not going to overspend. Oh, look at those shoes, <laughs> right? God wants us to do something different.